You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, April 24, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are glad that you are here. My name is Robert, and I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of serving us this morning, our time together in God's Word. And we have been spending some time in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis for the last several weeks, really kind of looking at it as God's map of reality for our flourishing. What, what is that story of which all of our lives are a part of that is true for us wherever we find ourselves? And we've been looking at it in, in big pictures. We've been bringing it down into smaller things, and we're going to continue that journey this morning. But if we could begin by trying to logically, which is kind of an important word, but logically sum up today's, let's call it, secular map of life. The logical summation of it, in a nutshell, would simply be this. You are living a trivial life on the way to a trivial death. That's the logical outworking of the map. If you're just an evolutionary byproduct, an enlightened animal, on their way to nothing, making your way day by day to nothing, then life is a more or less glorious accident on any given day. And with no inherent purpose or no inherent intent behind your existence, to be human, according to this map, logically thinking it through, means that you need to define meaning and happiness and joy and flourishing for yourself and get after getting what you can while you can. But is that true? Is that map accurate? You know, maps, we talked about it the week before Easter, maps have consequences for being wrong. Do you believe that you're just living a trivial life on the way to a trivial death? This is the map of our day. And the way that most are able to wake up and keep going day by day is by living with a high level of cognitive dissonance, we talked about a few weeks ago, between what's logical behind what they are agreeing to believe and then how they're choosing to live. But friends, I want you to hear once again, your existence is not trivial. It's not trivial precisely because you are an image bearer. You were created in the image and after the likeness of God. That's kind of been the north star of our journey on God's map of reality that we've been looking at. What it, what it means to be human, it means you are created in the image and after the likeness of God. And with that comes immense levels of dignity. You and I, as image bearers, are utterly differentiated from the rest of God's creation order. We carry the dignity of being the only aspect of his creation that bears his image in this way. And with this immense dignity also comes a profound humility. We are indeed creations. We are created. Which means, in one sense, we are dependent upon our creator. Our creator ultimately has authority over his creation. And in our created status, there is an inherent fragility to us. 
But at the same time, this created status also in itself carries a tremendous level of dignity as well. We are embodied. Our body matters to God. This is what we looked at right before Easter. There's a tremendous dignity in the bodies that we carry being created in the image and after the likeness of God. Dignity that God, that he himself reminded us of as he took on this form of flesh in his son. A body that he raised from the dead. A body in which Jesus is in right now at the right hand of the Father. Even in our created status, there's an immense dignity that comes with it. No one's captured this, I think, better than C.S. Lewis in his little book, The Weight of Glory. Some of you might be familiar with this. Lewis said, the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one of the other destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never, ever talked to a mere mortal. Friends, your life is in no way trivial. But even in that little snippet from the weight of glory, Lewis hints not only at the inherent dignity and in some sense the humility that comes with being created, he also talks about the serious responsibility that comes in being human. You and I as image bearers are meant by God to image, to image forth to a created world something of our creator. And we are to do that as we continue to be fruitful and steward his creation, to rule, to cultivate, to subdue his created order in a way that would reflect something of the creator's intention. And we do that as we think about everything that falls under God's created work. It's a serious responsibility to be human. But we've also been reminded as we've been going through these chapters that all of this has been impacted by the reality of sin. And ever since, there have been competing maps offering differing directions to flourishing that ultimately only lead to destruction. And you and I, we need to be awakened to what's at stake in all of this. It's not just talking points in a cultural war. I'm quite tired of hearing that phrasing. What's at stake ultimately is the dignity and the purpose and the joy for which we were created. Being a human is a profoundly important and profoundly serious responsibility. And so this morning we are going to return back again to the first three chapters of Genesis. And we're going to narrow down a little bit more to an aspect of this reality that we spoke about earlier, but we're going to come back to again now as we consider the beauty and the responsibility of God uniting two people, male and female, together in the institution of marriage. 
part of his created order. That as we'll see, you and I as image bearers are meant to reflect something of, of him in, in how we engage in that. And now I've got to say some things at the outset, though, that kind of name the obvious. It's a few things, I think. I'll watch the clock. First is simply this. This will not immediately seem as applicable to every person in the room in the exact same way. And I say that because not everybody in the room this morning or even listening this morning is married. Some listening would prefer to be married. Some listening are not married by choice. Some listening are not married because they've gone through the pain of a divorce or the pain of the loss of a spouse. Some and many in the room and will be in the room later and listening are not married because you're too young, you're kids. So so I understand that talking about marriage as we go through Genesis chapters one through three will not immediately seem as applicable to everyone in the room in the same way. So why talk about something like that? Well, that's the second thing we need to be clear about. There are things as we go through what God lays out for us in these chapters that we can learn. There's wisdom to be learned for those who someday may be married. But there's wisdom to be learned as we go through these chapters because much of what is laid out in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and in particular chapter 2 will be this morning, it applies as much to the relationships we have with one another as it does to our marriages, which is the most intense and personal of all human relationships that we could have. But much of what's there in principle and in the big picture applies to many of our relationships. Then lastly, though, to name the obvious, there's simply this. It's important to talk about it, even though it's not as immediately applicable to everyone in the room in the same way at the same time, because it's God's intention. And God's intention for marriage and the joy and the pain it brings into all of our lives in different ways is something that all of us experience in direct or indirect ways. And so that's what we're going to deal with this morning. And so we're going to trust God for the wisdom that comes from his word when we begin to consider what he says about this. And as I think about marriage and the institution of marriage, uh, I kind of have an image in my mind when I think about it, at least in its current state. Uh, if you've ever seen the pictures of a flag or an American flag or any country's flag that's, that's been flying or gone through war or battle in some way. I immediately think of the, the beginning or the, the, the picture that's on the cover of the movie Dances with Wolves. You know, Kevin Costner riding the horse and there's that flag he's holding and it's just beat to shreds. There's like two thirds of a flag on the pole. It's burnt, there's bullet holes flying through it, but it's waving in the wind. Have you seen pictures of the flags like that that have been through it? That's about what the institution of marriage looks like today to me. I mean, it's been burnt, beat up, torn up, bullet-ridden, still trying to fly in the wind. Statistically, depending upon who you read, who you listen to, what angle they're coming from, what people they're talking to, the statistics will vary to some degree, but they're all fairly consistent. Well over half of marriages today will end in divorce. The rising generations, at best, when you talk about marriage, are ambivalent on a good day. And let's just be really honest and be really fair. Why wouldn't they be? If over half, inside and outside of the church, statistically end in divorce, if you knew that you were going to go to a restaurant that you had over a 50% chance of getting food poisoning from, would you go? (laughs) Be logical. 
Would you get on the airplane and take that flight? If you knew there was a 50% or maybe 53%, depending on who you talk to, percent chance that it's not going to make it? At best, rising generations are ambivalent when you talk about marriage. And church statistics aren't inherently much better. Oftentimes, people in the church enter into marriage with the Pollyanna ideas of what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to fulfill or complete something that it was never intended to fulfill or complete. Either way, whoever you're talking about, most haven't thought seriously about what marriage is or why you should even get married. And so, of course, in light of that, we have all kinds of debate now as to who can get married and what constitutes a marriage and all of these surrounding things about it because we've never really stopped to take seriously what it is. What is it? Why should we even think about it? You've got to understand that how you understand the origin, the definition, and the purpose of marriage will direct where and to whom you will go for truth about it. That's important. How you understand the origin, definition, and purpose of marriage will direct where and to whom you will go for truth in relation to marriage. Right? If we are just to simply blindly follow the contemporary secular map in relation to marriage, now not just the big map of being human, but we go down to a smaller map that that map directs us towards, and we're talking about marriage and moving towards some level of flourishing. Remember, if it's the contemporary secular map, then we're just animals with time and chance on our side. And as we talked a little bit about right before Easter, then there's no inherent meaning to how we've been made, right? So even our our sexuality, being male, being female, it's just a means of self-expression. Gender, as you and I conceive of it in this map, is just a social construct, a construct that benefits some and oppresses others, which means the intimacy that comes between a husband and a wife, a, a married union, it's just a biological release. Remember, it's just what your body does. It's just what your body needs. It's not really that big of a deal. Which means then that the idea of marriage and the institution of marriage, it's just another social construct. A construct built that at one time advantaged some while it oppressed others. In fact, we we were watching a a show the other day at home, and this commercial came on that, that that summarized this in a way that I just could not believe what I was watching. It was a commercial for a, a cellular phone service, believe it or not. And it was this young couple, they were sitting down, the camera was tied in on their face, and man, they were just tired and haggard, right? And it said, you know, we talked on the phone for two years before we decided to get married for the family plan. And so we expanded our family. And the cameras pans out. And there's kids tearing up the room. There's stuff going everywhere. There's instruments being played in their ears. And they're about to die. And she says, and then my sister called me. And it flashes over to her sister, all made up and sitting on this beautiful sofa in this amazing apartment overlooking the city. And she told us that we didn't need a family. No family needed is the quotation for the plan. Tired, haggard, tied down, unhappy, worn out. (sighs) No family needed for happiness. No family needed at all. 
get to sit here, sit in my tea, lounge on my comfy sofa, got my blankets, got my view. It's just a construct that you can give or you can take. You'd really even only entertain the idea if it's according to your version of happiness. It's just two consenting adults giving it a run for a while. And if it doesn't fulfill your idea of meaning and happiness, then no worries, right? You can consciously uncouple or whatever it's called these days and just move on. Because the most important thing is that the kids see you being true to yourself, right? That's the map. Logically, if you were to follow according to its tenets. Sad to say, a lot of those ideas more or less have seeped their way into the church. Which is why as we talk about the institution of marriage and we go to God's map, his, this purpose in the first three chapters of Genesis, we don't need, the last thing we need is any more list of how-tos and how, what to do and techniques to do in marriage. We have a ready-made Christian publishing market ready for that, right? Right, that capitalizes on the fact that in the church we're just as anxious, just as demanding, just as hurried, just as busied, and just want someone to tell us what to do. And the reality of it is you've listened to all the podcasts and read all the books and still have all the problems. So I'm not going to do any kind of how-tos, any kind of techniques. That's, that's done, right? What we need is God's map of reality. What we need is his map to our flourishing, and that includes our marriages. What we need is a picture, a picture of the majesty and the awe and, and the joy that's possible. To know the purpose and to know the assurance that by God's grace we're even capable. And Genesis 1 through 3 is a lookout of sorts that you and I can go to where we can take all of that in. And so if you've got your Bibles, go, go to Genesis chapter 2. In fact, I think given the time while I'm watching the clock, we're just going to kind of live in Genesis chapter 2 when I think about it. Genesis chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18. And it's here in verses 18 through 25 that in a, in a very real way, we get a picture of the origin of marriage and of important parameters for marriage. And even a, a sense and a directive of the purpose behind it as well. And so we're going to try to see if we can find all of that in Genesis chapter 2, 18 this morning through 25. So here we go. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, what we're going to see is that marriage's origin is deeper than any idea of a social construct or convenience. It's born in the mind and in the intention of God himself. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, right? So, so two things already right there. It's not good for Adam to be alone, and there was no suitable helper found for him. And there's a lot of things that swirl around in my mind when I think about that, and I, I can't say I've got a lot of definitive answers to it, right? Adam wasn't inherently alone. He was with God. Remember, this is before Genesis 3. He doesn't know anything but 
that created reality and that presence with God. So when we talk about it's not good for Adam to be alone, the aching sense of loneliness and pain that you and I feel wouldn't have been a reality for him back there before Genesis 3. That kind of loneliness, as you and I think about it, it, that's not what was going on there. He wasn't sitting under a tree at night hurting because he was alone. What I think is being spoken of here, and again, there are so many questions that I even still have. I think what Moses is speaking to here is that Adam was alone in the sense that there, there was no other creature of his kind. And this is what he was seeing and God was showing him as he was naming every animal. There was no other other creature of the same kind as him. And in that, being alone in that, he could not fulfill his responsibilities as a steward to multiply and fill the earth or steward and cultivate the fullness of the earth and the full reflection of the character and purpose of God, God had intended to be reflected in the two. And so, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now remember, the first time we went through this in the, in the big kind of run through the first three chapters, we remind you, Adam had no say in this process. Right? This wasn't a request he made that now God is fulfilling. He didn't tell God what he wanted in this person that God was going to make. He had no design input in what was going to happen. He had no knowledge of it. He was asleep. And God did this. And so verse 23 says that God brought this woman to Adam. Then the man said, this at last is a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's kind of the John 3, 16 of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? A a simple reading, an honest reading of just these verses helps us to see at first that Marriage wasn't created as some kind of human construct at some point in time a while ago that was for the benefit of certain people. It was created by God for his glory and our joy. And when we talk about marriage and all the surrounding conversations around the institution of marriage that are happening today, it's very important that when we talk about what it is and where it came from. We start in the wrong place in so many of these conversations And you wonder why you end up in circular arguments about tangential things about this. You have to start with an understanding or a conversation about the origin of marriage itself. And a simple reading of God's word, his map of reality, reminds us and helps us to see that marriage itself has come intentionally from the mind and even the hands of God as he formed this man and this woman and brought them together for this purpose. But there's something else essential here that these verses show us when it comes to not only the origin, but some of the guardrails around the institution of marriage that God has for our joy and our flourishing. And it's simply this. These verses show us clearly 
that our differentiation as male and female is essential to what marriage is. It's essential. It's part of the definitive reality of marriage. It's part of the definition of marriage. Marriage is not simply the union of two consenting adults. It's the one flesh union between two sexually different people, a man and a woman. And this is God's intention, and it's in the verses. Let me, let me just show you how it's even highlighted right here. It's very important, because if you're going to talk about these conversations about, let's just call it, who can get married, you can't start there and spin around a drain. You've got to go back to understanding what's the definition of marriage. Is differentiation essential to the definition of marriage? If you can't start there and understand that, you're never going to get anywhere in a conversation about this. So just look at what God says. Look at the text of what he says. In, in verses 21 and 22, we talked about this in the macro level weeks ago, but when Moses speaks of God taking Adam's rib or his stuff, right, that word that we translate rib right there, it's used around 40 other times in the Bible. And it's never used again, out of, or translated at least, out of this chapter as rib, ever, anywhere else. The word is always used in connection with a sacred space, the temple or the tabernacle, always. It's always referring to some aspect of, of either the temple or the tabernacle. And so even in reading this, we're reminded that Adam and Eve's bodies are, are sacred. And they reflect something of the presence of God to the world. And there's a reflection of their creator inherent in their embodiedness, in particular now as we read the story, in their difference. Their difference and their embodiedness and the intentionality of their difference reflects something. It's sacred, and it reflects something of the creator to the world. In fact, in verse 23, as Adam begins to sing, he, he sings in this poem and celebrates the, the otherness of the woman and the sameness at the same time. The sameness and the difference. Adam sings that she's like me. She's, she's of my kind. She, she's a human and at the same time, she's me, but she's not me. She's different. She's female, which is why he calls her woman. If you remember from, from weeks ago, we went through this the first time, that word is just capturing the sameness and the difference. She's me, but she's not me. She's like me, but she's not like me. And that's an amazing thing, right? In fact, we were already getting hints of that earlier. When God said that there wasn't a suitable helper for him or a helper fit for him, as the ESV translates it. That word fit, <clears throat> excuse me, or suitable, depending upon your translation, fit or suitable, it's actually a compound word in Hebrew. And it takes two words, one for sameness and one for difference, and puts them together. There wasn't a suitable or fit helper for Adam. There wasn't one like him, but yet not like him. That's essential for the purpose for which I have him. There wasn't one there, right? That very description of the need, even by God himself, begins to highlight the importance of differentiation. 
sex difference and equality at the same time. So she now is equal to him since she's human, different because she's female. That is the big thing that the text is highlighting at this point. You've got to catch that. That is an intentional reality out of the mind and the design and the beauty and the purpose that God has for his creation. It's right there. Which makes the first word in verse 24 so important for the discussion we're having. What's the first word? Therefore. Some of your translations say, for this reason. Well, that means you have to go back and look at the verse before it, right? What I said, therefore. What did I just say? I have created her like you, but not like you. The whole thrust of verse 23 is their differentiation in their sexuality, is their sameness in their humanity, and their differentiation in their sexuality. Therefore, for that reason, because she's fully like you, fully equal to you, of the same kind as you, and yet not like you. Therefore, a man will leave home, weave a life together with this woman, and become one flesh in the union called marriage, born out of the intention of God. See, male and female differentiation is essential to even the definition of marriage. Unless you think it's fully antiquated in the Old Testament, Jesus affirms it in an even more direct way. I mean, most will say that if you just followed the teachings of Jesus today out from their logical end back then and now, we wouldn't have this conversation. But you need to go back and read him. Go back and listen to him. In Matthew chapter 19, you, you can go there later this week, the Pharisees come to Jesus challenging him about his ideas and understanding of divorce. They had some fast and loose ideas about it, and they came to try to trap Jesus. And Jesus literally answers them by quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, similar thing he says in Genesis chapter 2, where he says, God made them male and female, and then he quotes, jumps right over to chapter 2, therefore... I mean, listen to it. I'll read it to you right here. Have you not read, Jesus said, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Jesus makes it very clear that even marriage, by definition, is precisely the coming together of two sexually different people being made one flesh. Dr. Preston Sprinkle, uh, he, he, he said this about as well as I think anybody can say it. He said the Bible's foundational passage about human nature explicitly highlights the fact that we are embodied sexual creatures, male and female. We talked about that just two weeks ago. This is necessary and a beautiful part of our image-bearing status, being human. It's something that God deems very good. And it is, by definition, essential to what marriage actually is. See, the conversation around can two men or two women marry, that's the wrong place to start in a conversation. That's not where you start in a conversation. You start in trying to understand, one, what do we believe the origin of marriage to be? What do we believe, by definition, that marriage is? And does differentiation have any place in the definition of what marriage is based on where we understand the origin of marriage to be? That's where we have to start. 
This is where the map that God gives us of reality, kind of that, that north star in this becomes so important for us because we're reminded that marriage originated in the mind and hands of God. And it's a one flesh union between a man and a woman wherein he then gives us a, a purpose statement, so to speak, just a big picture, not a how-to, not a step-by-step, but a, a purpose statement for what he has created and intended when he says, therefore, in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother, that's one thing, hold fast to his wife, that's two, and they shall become one flesh. Again, there's a purpose there that God has. Now, I'll, I'll touch on all three of those in a second, and I'll, I'll, we'll sit on one with the time we have left, though. Marriage, as God intended, it, it requires an appropriate leaving. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But it requires an appropriate leaving. He says in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, you've got to remember, this doesn't inherently mean a physical departure or, or even in some sense a financial departure. That's not the way it was back then when it was written. Back then, it was multi-generational where you were. Homes or, or compounds or the places where people lived in the villages, they could have had upwards of three generations of people in it. Even today, when we go to Central Asia, we were there, last time we were there, there was someone we met who was getting married, and he was literally in the process of building this, this room addition onto his father's home, which had been his grandfather's home, and it's where he and his wife were going to live. It's still how it works in some parts of the world. So don't think immediately, you know, failure to launch, get out of the house. That's not what it's talking about right here. It wouldn't have been that way. Now, that may mean that in our day and in our time, there's something we have to look at, but there's something bigger at play here. When it talks in verse 24 about leaving a father and a mother, it's not necessarily physical or even financial. What it's talking about is, is leaving them as your primary loyalty. That's what it's talking about. And I understand there's an entire sermon to be had here, but it's leaving your mom and your dad, it's leaving that family of origin as your primary loyalty. It may also entail leaving some habits and some patterns and, and maybe even the nature of some friendships that served as a primary loyalty. They no longer come first before your spouse, right? It's all the phrases we have for all that these days. I won't say them because they're probably not polite for me to say, but your friends no longer capture that place in your heart in the way they had. Your primary sense of loyalty is now to this other woman or man. Your spouse becomes the most important human relationship you have on this earth. And so this idea of leaving, in a sense, it requires us to ask the question, to whom do I give my greatest loyalty right now? If you're married right now, who do you give your greatest loyalty to? You got to be honest about it and think about it. Your heart, your intentions, your attitudes, and even your actions, they all flow out of it. Who or what captures your primary loyalty? Is it your spouse? Right? There's an appropriate leaving that's required in this, but there's also a, a weaving together of a new life. And we're going to circle back to this because this is where we're going to end. I want to spend the last little bit of our time there. It, it requires something of us that we're in short supply of these days, a, a level of intentionality that I think we need to be reminded of. But this leaving then puts us, as we shift that primary loyalty, into weaving together a new life with this person who now has captured the primary loyalty of my heart and of my life. And then it also requires a becoming of one flesh or 
as the phrases say, if you grew up in the church, a cleaving together to a spouse in, in physical intimacy. And God is not squeamish about this. I've said this before as we've been going through this. This is talking about the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. And God is not squeamish about it. He's not squeamish about sex. He created it. All right? Just sit with that for a minute. It was his idea. He created it. He's not squeamish about it. In fact, verse 25 tells us at the end right here that they stood naked and were not ashamed. And for millennia, the Bible, God's word, and the church have celebrated and honored this reality, right? It is so good and it's so powerful that what happens when when two souls become one, that there's only one container strong enough to handle the nuclear force of it, and it's marriage, a covenantal union between one man and one woman for life. Which is why when you read all these verses or things that seem to prohibit sexual activity, it's talking about sexual activity outside of marriage. Because it's activity that doesn't lead to flourishing, right? God's not negative about sex at all. Go read Song of Solomon. It will make you blush over and over again. It was his idea. It was his intention within the framework and guardrails of the union that he's created. He's not negative about sex in marriage. In fact, he celebrates it. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. We joke about this every time we do a wedding, but it's true. It says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home for a year to be happy with his wife. And notice, because we're going to move back on to weaving, we we will come back to this in our time for a whole morning. I'll give you a heads up on it, though. (laughs) Notice that there in Genesis chapter 2, when we're explicitly talking about this union, nothing is mentioned about the role of procreation. Right? That's the other rap the church has gotten for hundreds of years, that we only talk about sex because it's only for having children. Once we have the children we want, it's no big deal. This is about your happiness and your joy. And the delight that God intends for you and your spouse to have. Nothing said about there about having kids. That's part of being fruitful. We'll, we'll come back to it. But that's not what it's intending here, right? God has created this, right? It's part of the purpose that's inherent in the union, right? There's a leaving that's required. There's a weaving together that is essential. And then there's an intimacy of two becoming one flesh that God has given us for our delight and for our joy and ultimately his glory, but with the time we got left, I don't really have much time left. I just want to talk a little bit about this weaving that is required, right? This is the part where I think a lot of our conversation needs to happen in the years to come. This weaving together of a new life requires an intentionality that I think we're in short supply of in life in general. And there's a lot of reasons why, but it requires an intentionality that's also part of our calling as stewards of creation. The cultivating and the unearthing of the potential that God has laid, has latent in his created order. Remember, marriage is part of God's created order. Your spouse is part of God's created order. Therefore, part of our purpose and responsibility as his image bearers is this role of stewarding and cultivating the inherent potential that he's put in his created order, which also includes your spouse and your marriage. It falls under the same responsibility and calling. Right, marriage is the union of two image bearers. 
two glory reflectors. The potential is staggering. And so as you begin to weave this new life together, it requires you to study the glory inherent in the one that God has given you. Because that person, that man or that woman, is an image bearer of God. Who has God made them to be? They are distinctive. There is no other one like them. I know we joke about the whole snowflake thing in reality today, but there is no other person on the face of the earth exactly like your spouse. God has made them intentionally as his image bearer, and there is something about him that they can reflect to a world, a likeness of their creator that only they can reflect and that only they can give to the world. And part of your responsibility is to study that, to know it, to begin to see it so that you might be able to act and live and weave in such a way that you can begin to unearth it. God made them like no other being in creation. And part of this weaving requires you and I beginning to be captured by their potential, by their giftedness, by their burdens, by their passions. How do you draw out their uniqueness? How do you unfold that potential that they have latent within them so that they, as as they live, and whatever God has put in front of them and in front of the two of you as a family in how they live, they reflect God's glory in a way that no one else can do. Your spouse is a unique reflection of God. And you and you alone have the privilege to enjoy that and at the same time labor to enhance it. Dan Allender, who is a counselor, he, he said to view our spouses through the lens of glory is to be overwhelmed by the privilege of being face to face with a creature who mirrors God. You're married in here. What, what do you see when you look at your spouse? You're face to face with a creature who mirrors God. Your marriage is tied to your calling to cultivate. You have the privilege and the opportunity to cultivate the character of Christ in your spouse by his word and his spirit. To see Christ formed in one another. It should be the greatest privilege that we have and we get to do it together as our lives are woven together. As one writer said, we get to encourage one another to know and trust the heart of the Father through the passion of Jesus so that we can better shape, cultivate, and and unfold the world in which he has placed us. Is that how you view your marriage? This is where, even for those who who are not married in the room, it, it really translates into the relationships that we have in this world. The same thing holds true in how we relate to one another. Paul would say in Colossians 1, for this I toil, that people become mature in Christ is what he's talking about. For this I labor, struggling with all of my energy that God powerfully works within me. This is the purpose. This is the labor. There's an argument around translation right there with labor. Some talk about like work, like using your hands, like, like Paul making tents. But others translate that word labor like a mother giving birth to a child in the labor. Both require a sacrifice, both require a work, both involve pain, both involve you setting aside something of yourself that you might want to be able to do something else. Both require the picture and the idea of an artist and and the love and a sacrifice of a mom wanting to bring a child into the world. 
But it's for this, the presentation of someone else mature in Christ, the unfolding of the potential that God has within them as an image bearer. It's for this that we get to labor and work. The life you weave, your your marriage, it, it will never, as one writer said, be better than the picture you have of one another's potential in Jesus and your willingness to sacrifice for one another to see the growth happen. I'll say that again. The life you weave together, your marriage, will never be better than the picture you have of one another's potential in Jesus and your willingness to sacrifice for one another to see growth happen. Contrary to popular narratives and maps, marriage is not just convenient to have a built-in activity partner. It's not what it's for. Right, it's a whole other sermon about how even in the church, we, we look at marriage as a convenience for ourselves and under which without intention of weaving together this life that God has called us to weave together, we end up with two separate people living separate lives with kids and and busyness and it's all held together by a whiteboard but there's no intentionality in weaving and knowledge and cultivating unfolding. It's just activity partners. I do my thing, you do your thing, we make sure the kids do their thing and we'll go on about it. That's so much less than what God has for us in this. The weaving together of two lives is the intention of cultivating the character of Christ in one another so that you can better shape and care for the world that you're in. It is difficult because marriage is the union of two image bearers, but it's also the union of two sinners. And so the the potential for multiplied joys is right there with the potential for multiplied grieves. But here's the thing. That's all I'll say about it. You will do one of two things you will either move towards cultivating, enhancing, or unearthing the glory in your spouse, or you will move to tarnishing that reflection. That ground will simply lie fallow. There is no neutral. It's one or the other. Through your intentions, through your words, through your actions, through your attitudes, through your life, you will be doing one or the other. You are cultivating to enhance to see the character of Christ unfolded in this person or you're simply tarnishing that image and that glory. The ways we do that are are a multitude. We don't have time to get into them. But you and I are meant to see our spouses for what they are meant to become in Jesus without allowing ourselves to get bitter or complacent for where they actually are. Your spouse is the one that you're to be primarily intentionally about spending yourself cultivating and to whom you should be open to be cultivated by as well. As together we trust the grace of God through his word and his spirit to weave together two into one into a, a work of art and a life that only he is capable of creating. Right back to the beginning, that's what Lewis said. Weight of glory. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other destination. There's no middle. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's it's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, right? And this stuff matters. Not in a culture war, not in a Facebook post, not just for insurance and tax purposes. This stuff matters on a cosmic level. Because just as your spouse images the glory of God, Human marriage, as God created images to a watching world, something of his relationship to his people. It's a visible picture of an invisible reality. 
And this is where we'll end today. Paul said in Ephesians 5, again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Just as God presented Eve, that first bride to Adam, he is presenting the church, his people to his son. And the same faithfulness and fidelity is on display. He is faithful to us. No one else is capturing his heart. Just as nothing else is to capture our heart rather than him. He is committed to our good. He is committed to unfolding the good and to transforming us into the likeness of his character and person. And just as we sacrifice to unfold the glory in our spouses. Friends, our marriages were born in the mind and the hands of God. One flesh union between a man and a woman who together leave former loyalties and weave by God's grace a new life together intent on cultivating the character of Christ in each other as they cleave together as one flesh, pushing back the fear and the shame. And there's an opportunity to put on display in all of this the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to us through his son. Just as your life is in no way trivial according to God's plan, neither is your marriage. It's not trivial. It matters. And there is more joy and more glory to be found there than I think you and I realize. May God take us to the place where we can see and get a picture of all that is inherent by his purpose to be had and found by us in it. I'm going to pray for us, and and then together we are going to respond to God's word this morning. Father, we thank you that your word builds for us the, the safest of containers, the safest of guardrails for the deepest of joys. Wherever we are now in this world being scarred by the consequences of sin in our relationships, in our families, in our lives, Lord, it doesn't remove the the beauty and the joy and the purpose for which you created. Lord, help us this morning to, to get a bigger picture of what you have for us in our relationships with one another, in particular our marriages. Lord, help us, those of us who are married, to help us out of the rut of convenience, out of the, the rut of just getting along And Lord, give us a a picture of the deepest and the fullest joy and flourishing that's possible by your grace. Lord, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.